0: And if you don't have a Bible, just lift up your hand. We'll go ahead and get one over to you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can have that as our gift to you. John chapter 1, verse 14. Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing thing to think that You sent Your Son and You tabernacled among us. Thank You for condescending Yourself to do such a thing for us. And beyond us, You did it for Your glory. Father, I pray for Steve as he preaches the word, God. I pray that you would empower him by the Spirit and that our listening would be empowered by the Spirit so that we may understand what the Scripture says. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Deemer, And thank you for taking on an extra task this morning. I love that. That was great. Just singing those songs together just with our voices. Matter of fact, we have one more request that came in, Deemer that we're going to do at the end for the kids, all right? All right. Um, you guys may have seen this video I'm about to show at some point, or maybe you read an article about it. It happened a few years ago. But I'm going to go ahead and start playing it and explain what you're seeing on the screen here. All right. Over to the left here is a young man playing a violin. He'll pick it up here in a second and start playing a violin. This was a social experiment that the Washington Post did in the subway station in Washington, D.C., the young man there is Josh, Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell. He's one of the most talented violin players in the whole world. And they put him in the subway station with his, uh, his violin case open. And just kind of as an experiment to see if people could recognize um, good music. And what people, uh, if people would even stop and listen to it. Well, anyway, he played for about an hour in the Washington, D.C. subway station. And as you can guess, he was pretty much ignored, despite the fact that he was playing one of the most intricate and difficult pieces of music that could be played, um, and some of the most fa- from some of the most famous composers in history. Not only that, the violin he's using there is a rare Stradivarius that is um, uh, estimated to be somewhere between three and four million dollars in worth. Okay. Take that into the Washington, D.C. substation. You're going to be pretty brave. But there he is, and playing this very expensive instrument, playing this beautiful, amazing music. And he himself, being one of those talented musicians in the world, and he was ignored. A few people stopped and listened. There was one story of a, a child who wanted to listen, and the mom said, we're going to be late, and yanked the child on. And uh, some people put some money in his uh, little violin case. I think he got like $37 over that hour which actually isn't too bad for an hour's work. But the funny thing is, three nights before, he sold out the Boston Symphony Hall for $100 a seat. The thing is, this amazing musician playing this amazing instrument and this amazing music was totally ignored. No one stopped to think about what they were hearing, to pay attention to what they were, who they were watching. And what all was going on in front of them. And it makes me think about the Christmas season in this sense. Here we are. You can go anywhere all around uh, the area. And you'll see the Christmas trees and the lights and the wreaths. And um, you'll see the last person. One person acknowledged him there at the end. I missed that. One person at the very end said, you're Joshua Bell. And they said, this could only happen in D.C. So one person out of all those people recognized him. But here we are in this culture that we talk about Christmas a lot, we we build it up, it's of course the the, the biggest holiday of the year, and there's all the decorations and everything else, and, and there's even been a little bit of a backlash. You know, a couple of years ago, everyone went from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays, and there's been a little bit of a backlash to that, now you're seeing stores say Merry Christmas again, which is nice, or they'll say Merry Christmas and then put every other possible greeting they can put to kind of cover themselves. But... We live in, not just at Christmas time, but all throughout the year, we live in a terribly Christ-ignoring culture. And it's most ironic at this time of the year. At this time of the year, when you've got all the music and everything going on all around you. And sometimes I'll hear some of the songs that we sang today with those beautiful lyrics that point to the greatness and the grandeur of Christ and the incarnation. And you'll hear them in the background of a car commercial or something. Because we live in a Christ-ignoring culture. And and what Christ brought to our world, infinitely of greater value than that Stradivarius, and people just ignore him. Ignore Christ. And it happens in the church, unfortunately, as well. That we have a lot of churches today that are talking about all kinds of things at Christmas, but not getting to the heart of what this is really all about. I want us to journey through... um, parts of John chapter 1 here this morning and cause our minds to be turned to the glory of the incarnation, the glory of what happened in John chapter 1, 14 that we read about. I want us to think about who this child is in the manger. Who is this baby? Because I think we have a lot of different Uh, Jesuses in our culture we have a lot of different Jesuses in our churches sometimes and I want us to think deeply about who this child is let us not ignore this child in Matthew chapter 16 as Jesus is nearing uh, sort of the last phase of his ministry on the earth he is beginning to reveal to his disciples that he is going to be betrayed he is going to be turned over to the um to the authorities in Jerusalem, and that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. And right before he begins to reveal these things to his disciples, he asked them a very important question. It's the same question that I'm trying to ask this morning in the form of, who is this baby in the manger? Let me just read the text for you in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the question, that the most important question probably anyone can answer. Is who do you say that Christ is? is who do you say that jesus is and so that's my question for us this morning who do you say that this baby in the manger is we all must answer that question who is jesus we live in a christ ignoring culture but if our culture isn't ignoring christ well it's reinterpreting christ you have you have the best friend jesus out there right who jesus is just my homeboy you've seen the shirts And he's just my best friend, right? He's just kind of my buddy to get me along through life. And and you know what? Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he's so much more than that. And to reduce him to just your buddy is to present a false Christ. There's the fix my life Jesus. This is the slot machine Jesus that we go to whenever we just need to fix life so we can have our best life now. I think a lot of people think that this is the Jesus that Tim Tebow prays to every Sunday. Give me the victory Jesus. You put the slot machine in, and now I've heard Tim Tebow talk about what he prays before before each game. He's not praying that Jesus will win the game for him, but that's what the world thinks. And so there's the, the fix my life Jesus. There's the good example to follow Jesus, which is the one that I believe has infected the church too much. And that is we make Jesus some sort of moral character that we're just supposed to somehow figure out how to follow and just be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Then there's the uh, political Jesus at both Occupy Wall Street and on the other side of the coin, the uh, Tea Party. I can go find you pictures on the internet where both of them were claiming Jesus was part of their movement. There's the political Jesus. And then, of course, there's this movement that's been within the academia for the past oh, decades, and that is to look for the true historical Jesus, where they take the Bible go ahead and eliminate everything that's of any sort of supernatural um, value and just wipe that out and then get rid of anything else that makes them uncomfortable and say, okay, we're reducing Jesus to these things here. That's sort of the, what people call the historical Jesus. But I'd rather listen to the man who was a closer friend to Jesus Christ than any other human being during Jesus' earthly ministry, which is John the Apostle. How does John answer this question, who is this baby in the manger? John wants us to understand the magnitude of the miracle of the incarnation. So before we get into our text, which is John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Before that, He gives us 13 other verses that leave us stunned when we read and understand that the Word, when we know who the Word is, and we read that that Word became flesh. That is, that He became human. He became fully man, and He dwelt among us. Literally, it means He tabernacled with us or pitched His tent among us. The imagery here is huge because it's drawing the reader back to the Old Testament tabernacle. And when they set up the Old Testament tabernacle, you'll remember, once it was in place and set up, the glory of God appeared in the tabernacle. And so we read here that he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. But it's what John tells us in the preceding verses, that causes us to see what an astounding and incomprehensible mystery the Incarnation really is. It's what John tells us in these preceding verses that causes us to get a glimpse of the magnitude of the miracle that happened in that stable in Bethlehem that actually happened nine months earlier. And so I've got three points this morning as we walk through this text a little bit. And the first one is simply this. We're going to talk about the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh, oops, go back one for me, is the pre-existent God of the universe. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Now imagine you're sitting in a church in... uh, in, in the Roman uh, colonies and the Roman Empire during those days. And I don't know, pick a city, Corinth, Ephesus, wherever. And this Sunday, they're going to be reading from John's Gospel. And maybe you haven't heard John's Gospel yet, and you hear these first words, In the beginning. And if you know your Old Testament at all, you know what comes next. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. But John stuns his readers by saying this, In the beginning was the Word. Clearly drawing the people who are listening to what he's saying back to Genesis 1-1 and teaching them clearly from the very get-go that this Word is God. In the beginning, everyone who knew their Old Testament would have expected the next Word to be God. But John says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus, God's final revelation to mankind, God's communication to mankind, God's creative agency, the sum of all God's wisdom, the revelation of all of God's character and nature in the personhood of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago and at many times in many places God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is The word. Now, some will claim that John here is using this logos word in a philosophical sense, as the Greeks of his day did, to refer to the world's controlling rational principle. That's what the Stoics believed, or teaching that there's that some sort of intermediate created intermediary between God and his world, which is what Philo taught. But the logos here that John refers to is not a principle or a divine characteristic. It's the preexistent, life-giving person, second person of the Trinity, God. John's concept of Jesus as logos actually opposes Greek philosophy by arguing that salvation comes not by mankind's escape from this world, but by God entering into it and redeeming mankind and restoring all of created order. Jesus is pre-existent. That's what John is communicating here when he says, in the beginning. Before time began, before anything was created, before God began to craft together time and space and matter, the Word was there. Matter of fact, the Word was the agent of creation. We'll get to that in a bit. But as John continues, I want you to notice two things. First, he says, the Word was with God. In the beginning... There was community. Jesus, the Word, was with God. God's nature is such that he is one God in three persons within the Godhead. John doesn't bring the Holy Spirit into the picture exactly at this moment. He does later. But regardless, we see from this text here that God in his very nature is relational. He's a God of fellowship. He's a God of community. And he had that within his own nature before the world began. We started off the Jesus Tribe series just talking about that for two, three weeks, I think. Just talking about God's nature within himself is a God of community, of fellowship. So this word that became flesh to redeem men and purchase a people unto himself did not need us. He did not need us. The rescue mission of the cross was not a self-help program so that God wouldn't be lonely. Well, I read a book once, and the very first line of the book was, God created us because he needed us. I didn't read any more of it. I just said it at that point. God did not need us. He's not like us with your Facebook page, and you look over and you go, oh, I only have 200 friends. I hope someone likes me today. God didn't need to be liked or someone to invite him to be their friend. God had perfect community, perfect relationship, within the godhead the father does not need us because the word was with him the incarnation therefore is an overflow of god's extravagant love and mercy poured out undeservedly upon us god could have wiped man off the planet and still been god and still been just as happy in relationship within the godhead but he didn't instead the preexistent son stooped into time and space and matter and became flesh. So the Word was with God. That's the first thing you notice here in this uh, first few verses. The Word was with God, but secondly, the Word was God. Just to leave no doubt, Jesus the Word was not some angelic created being or a semi-God that was closer to God than all of other created beings. No, He was, He is God. Lest we be tempted to see the relational aspect of God as requiring that the Word be something other than God or that there be two gods, John says no. There is one God. And the great mystery is that within the Trinity there is both with and was. So the Word was with God, but the Word was God. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Philippians 2.6 teaches us that Jesus is equal with God. The one true God, therefore, exists eternally and simultaneously as three distinct and distinguishable persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second person in the Trinity, the Son, the Word, took on human flesh and a fully human nature in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth without diminishing his deity and divine nature in the least bit. He is the God-man. That's why this incarnation is so mind-blowing. That's why it transcends human thinking. Who is this baby in the manger? He is God. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bible never declares that Jesus is God. That is not true. It's all over the place. We could spend months just looking at the many passages in the Gospels alone where Jesus makes it very clear that he is the Son of God and that he is God. Not to mention passages in the epistles like the ones uh, we've already alluded to, or this one in Colossians 1.15, where it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we would misunderstand Paul if we were to understand firstborn to mean that Jesus was a created or birthed person. Instead, Paul intends this word to represent Christ's position. He, as the Son, has the rights and privileges of a firstborn over all the universe. So John goes on in verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. So here's the second point. The Word made flesh is the uncreated creator and sustainer of all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now does that sound a bit confusing? I mean, why didn't John just say he made everything? Or just put a period where right there it says, and without him was not anything made. I mean, it seems like it would have been a whole lot clearer. But actually, there's no trivial or careless words in Scripture. Not a single one. And the Holy Spirit inspired John to say exactly that. Because John's being very careful here to point out that Jesus is not within the category of the created. Listen to it again. And without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so some would may, maybe would argue, well, yeah, Jesus made everything, but God made him first before all, everything else. But John says here, without him was not anything made that was made. In other, than, in other words, there's a category of things called things that were made. And Jesus does not fit into that category. Jesus is not a made thing. There are things that were made. And there is only one God who was unmade, and Jesus was not made. There is a category here that Jesus does not fit into. Instead, he is the one who created it all. He made all things visible and invisible. Hebrews 1, 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again referring back to Colossians 1 says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And then Paul goes on to say that Jesus not only created all things things he says in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1 and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Who is this baby in the manger? Are you beginning to grasp the profound mystery of the incarnation? At the same time that he was being held in Mary's arms, he was holding the universe together. That's an absolutely astounding, mind-blowing miracle. Jesus never ceased to be the Word when the Word became flesh. He created all things, visible and invisible. He keeps them together. So when a scientist looks into the the depths of molecular structure and they detect the atomic structure with the protons and the neutrons and spinning and all that stuff, and if I got any of that wrong, you can correct me. I am not a molecular scientist, but I'll tell you what. I know this. Jesus is the one that keeps that stuff spinning And without him holding it together, the whole universe collapses. And while he was being held in Mary's arms, he was actively holding the universe together. That is an awesome truth. An amazing truth. But like the ignorant subway riders in Washington, D.C., we ignore the maestro of the universe As he beautifully orchestrates and sustains all of created order. Because we live in a Christ-ignoring culture. And unfortunately, oftentimes, our churches practice a Christ-ignoring religion. John continues. Point number three this morning is this. The Word made flesh is the redemptive life and light of mankind. John continues to draw on the imagery of Genesis here with this concept of life and light. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Now we certainly can understand from the word life in the sense of our physical, biological existence that our being, our very life, biological life, was created by Christ and therefore it's attributed to him. But John here is speaking of more than just the physical and biological function because life is much more than that. And death, conversely, is much more than the ceasing of biological function. What John is talking about here is, as Deemer mentioned earlier, the reversal of the curse. What's John talking about in John chapter 1? I love that you said that, Deemer. I was about to say, you just keep on preaching, brother. Okay? Because it was exactly what I was going to say. Which means the Holy Spirit was speaking anyway. So, perfect. It's the reversal of the curse here. Because when Adam sinned, God said that you will die if you eat of that fruit. And when Adam sinned, he didn't die immediately, but he died spiritually immediately. And immediately, all of mankind, along with Adam, fell into darkness and death. But now... The Word has come and has changed everything. In love He has ransomed us unto life. For in Him was life, life that transcends biology, life that is abundant and full, life of a spiritual nature that restores mankind to God and brings man into light. 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live... Through him. God, who by his word in Genesis 1 3 said, Let there be light, now again sends forth his word to bring the light of redemption to mankind. Only when that life is breathed once again into a dead man by the sovereign work of God can the light ever be seen. Eyes open to the light when life is breathed in to dead men. That's what John means when he says, The life was the light of men. It's the life that Jesus gives that allows men to see the light. Only when we've been born again into a new life by the work of the Word of God can we begin to experience light, the pure revelation of His truth and character in Christ. Apart from the life of Christ invading our spiritual corpses, we go on rejecting it just as the rest of the world does. Just as the rest of the world does. John 1, nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's like the subway in D.C. I doubt the illustration doesn't work perfectly because someone at the end did recognize him. Someone at the end did recognize him, but the scriptures make it very clear no one can come to the father no one can come to the son unless the father draws them no one can come to the son unless the father draws them that life that regeneration happens by the work of the spirit and then we're brought to know him he came to his own, verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. Receive him. Here it is, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Lest you think verse 12 teaches that, well, you just got to reach out and grab the present. Lest you think that it's all about what you got to figure out how to, how to get Jesus into your heart. This is what John says to crush that thought. Those who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God is the one who does the work. He gets every bit of the glory. and We praise him for the work he does to save sinners. This is what this baby in the manger is all about. Bringing new life and light of the glory of God to a dark, dead, sinful, and lost humanity. Therefore, we must see that this cute baby was born to die a cruel death. We must see that the word that took on the cute, cuddly flesh and blood of a baby did so so that that flesh could be torn and that blood could be spilt some 33 or so years later. We must see that the tiny hands that Mary and Joseph held that night would one day be pierced for our transgressions. We must see that the manger was simply the first step First stop on the journey to Golgotha. We must see that this precious baby born in our manger scenes was to be the perfect sacrifice and the only means by which the sins of humanity might be dealt with and that the wrath of God might be satisfied. Colossians 1 again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood Of his cross. And again we read in Hebrews. It says after making purifications for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is this baby in the manger? The cradle must point to the cross. The cradle must point to the cross. Let me take us back to Jesus with his disciples as they're journeying. And as he's beginning to reveal to them what's happen, what's going to be happening now, he asked them that important question earlier, and Simon Peter answered it correctly. Of course, it wasn't Simon Peter couldn't get any of the credit because Jesus says, "You know what? My Father revealed that to you, so don't get a big head about yourself." But I don't think Peter listened, because just a few moments later, it says this in Matthew sixteen twenty one. If we don't see that the cradle leads to the cross and all we want is the warm fuzzies, we're not setting our mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because everyone loves the cradle scene. It's the cross that's offensive. And I'm afraid that's what happens. I think that's what happens in our personal walks with the Lord is that we're wanting best friend Jesus or fix my situation Jesus but Jesus who died on the cross to deal with sin not so much or our churches today it's easy to say yeah Jesus you're the son of the living God the Messiah but let's talk about the cross some whoa Let's don't go there. I've told the story before, and this was a true story shared with me. Hopefully, I'm telling true stories. A story shared with me by another pastor. I'm assuming it's a true story from another pastor. That doesn't mean it's a true story. But he was talking about there was a church that that had burned down, a church building, I should say, that burned down. And so another church came and and was going to let them use their facility and said, yeah, y'all can come use our facility on Sunday afternoons when we're done whatever. And so the first Sunday rolled around and uh, this church, this particular church, had a, had a cross either in their baptistry or somewhere. And, and so the, they were done with their services. They were getting done. Pastor hangs around to help the other church get situated. They came in and they take a, a, a piece of cloth, a drape or something, and they put it over the cross just to sort of hide it. And so the pastor's a little bit curious at this point. says, what are you doing? And the pastor of the other church says, you know, in our church we don't talk about the cross and the blood and the stuff like that. That's just too offensive these days. Now, I don't know how the rest of the story went. I hope that other pastor had the boldness to say, step on out. Maybe he didn't, because I know myself. I don't know. But I know this. If we don't let the manger scene drive us to Calvary... Then our minds aren't set on the same things that God, where God wants our mind to be set. Someone much greater than Joshua Bell has descended, condescended to our earth and was made flesh with a gift much greater than a $3 million Stradivarius. Yet our culture just goes on walking by and ignoring it. So it's our task, brothers and sisters, it's our task as we leave this place today on this Christmas day to not fall into the pattern of the culture and just ignore Christ with everyone else, but to be a bold witness. Today we're going to take some cookies over to the fire station, and I hope that the group that's going to take the cookies over to the fire station will take that opportunity to say, have some cookies, Merry Christmas, and by the way, it's all about Jesus. I hope that as you're opening presents under the trees today, if you haven't already, kids, I don't know, if you're opening the presents that, you'll, that your family will stop and say, you know what, it has nothing to do with any of this. And get our minds back where they're supposed to be. Put our minds on heavenly things instead of earthly things. So church, your challenge is to be missionaries this week. Be missionaries as you go out. And share the gospel with those in your workplace, in your schools. I don't know if there's any schools in session this week, maybe not. In uh, your neighborhoods and in your homes. Let's pray. Right now, we're just going to bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord Jesus to work in our hearts and to help us if there's any area in our life that where we've been ignoring Christ and our mind has been set on the wrong things. Let's just confess these things to the Lord and respond to him this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We praise you for the miracle. We praise you for the miracle of the incarnation. We praise you for the Son. We thank you that the Son stooped into humanity, into this cesspool of sin. And in doing so, create a means by which we might be reconciled to you. It wasn't just to give us a cute scene that we can reproduce in Christmas musicals. It was to provide flesh and blood, perfect flesh, perfect blood, that could be sacrificed on our behalf. And so God, I thank you so much for this Christmas season. I pray, Lord, that you stir our hearts with affection for you, stir our hearts to be witnesses for you wherever we go, whatever we do today. As we wish people Merry Christmas, Lord, may we we do more than that. May we point people to the cross. May we be bold with our witness. May we be true with our witness. And God, if there's any areas in our life that our eyes have been turned toward earthly things and distracted so that we've become God-ignorers then Lord, forgive us of that sin and restore us to righteousness and cause us to walk in your ways. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.